Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I think that what I like about the guest that we have today is that he's done it not once, but five times. So I think that we're gonna learn what the full cycle looks like and what it looks like when you do it not once, but five times. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest to the show, Jay Chowdhury. Welcome to the show, to the Deal Maker Show today. It's an honor to have you. Alejandro, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. So I'd like to do a little bit of a walk through memory lane here and, and, and go about, you know, how you were brought up in your childhood, because I believe you were born and raised in a very little town uh, next to the Himalayas. Is, is this right? That's right. In the foothills of Himalayas. So how many people were there? My village had 800 people. So how was life growing up there? It's wonderful. It's a small little um town off its own, um, you know, happy and contented without any big things in life. We got electricity once I finished my eighth grade. We got running water when I finished 10th grade. But it's good. It's good. I, my parents were farmers, small-scale farmers. So I learned all the hard work and ethics and in integrity from them. That's amazing. So at what point do you start getting involved with with computers because i understand that you got your your bachelor of technology there there in india so how, how did you start to get involved with the world of electronics and and computers yeah you know i don't have a history of a young kid at at six or eight year old playing with computers uh, i did farming my dad who never got a chance to really go to school encouraged me to study and i was good at studies so when I finished my high school and people said engineering is good to do, I said, wow, I should do engineering. And when the opportunity came and say, what kind of engineering? Computers were not widely used at that time. And I heard that electronics engineering was a good thing. So I applied to IITs and got into electronics engineering and that took me towards computers. So. I probably went there by accident rather than by choice, by design. So then at what point do you land in the U.S.? So once I went to IIT, you know, I realized that uh, 
there were lots of smart people who had come from various parts of India, from some of the best schools and best backgrounds. And after the first or second year, everyone was talking about uh, going to the U.S. for masters. It was a very popular thing to do, and I, I started to talk to those friends, and I started looking at different schools and say, I will apply to go to U.S. as well. So after <clears throat> I finished my bachelor's degree, I applied and I got admission in a few places, but <clears throat> there's only one place I could come to because they offered me tuition scholarship. So I came to University of Cincinnati and I was lucky that, <clears throat> you know, Tata, one of the big industrials in India, they offered <clears throat> uh, a small scholarship that could give me a plane ticket. So I bought a plane ticket. I was here. So very lucky. Was it like a really, a, I mean, a big culture shock to to all of a sudden land here and see like everything that is happening around you, especially with innovation? You know, it was a fairly big change coming from India, but I would say going from a village to IIT was a much bigger change for me than coming from my college to the U.S. because we all read and talked about the U.S. We knew what to expect. But going from my village to IIT was a much bigger change. Got it. Got it. So one of the things that, that I thought it was really interesting is that you went right at it as an entrepreneur yourself. So you didn't wait uh, long. So you literally, in 96, mm -hmm. you went at it with Secure IT. So why did you decide to take this route, you know, rather than maybe like working for someone else? Like, like what was the trigger? Right. So I did actually work for different companies for a little over a dozen years, probably 13, 14 years after doing my master's. From, okay, got it. And so I learned um, some of the sales and marketing at companies like IBM, NCR, Unisys. But in early 90s, I started reading about uh, the Silicon Valley. Uh, Netscape had just gone public. I loved the internet, the browser had just came around. So I was reading more and more about it. And really, after reading all this stuff, I was asking the question, why can't I do these startups? So that's really the whole thing started. I don't have a history in my family of starting businesses from very early on. It was uh, reading that got me excited about these things. And that's when I said, let's try. Now, I'm always, I have been a risk taker all along. So getting into a startup was a, a little bit natural for me because startups means taking risks. So then I believe that that with Secure IT, I mean, this is your first rodeo and mm -hmm. when it's your first venture, it's not as easy. So so who was kind of like the the founding team to really build this, this company up? Who was there with you behind the trenches during the early days? So... I did all the business model figuring out. And, you know, when I started it, we didn't just put our life save on the line. My wife, who is actually an IT professional with an MBA in finance, okay, I told her that, why don't we do the following? You also quit your job. She was working at Bell South. So we burned the bridges behind. So there's no turning back. And you handle all the finance, the HR, the payroll, all the other stuff that needs to be done. And I focus on 
sales and marketing, and it was professional services company. We did security services. There was not a lot of engineering needed to build the product. It was uh, essentially designing, architecting, selling, supporting, deploying security products like firewalls and the likes. So I needed to hire people who have, were technically good to deploy these products. So we hired a few of them, but uh, the biggest uh, inspiration and my starting partner was my wife, Jyoti. That's amazing. Well, I started my last business with my wife, so I know the feeling. It's <laughs> You need two communications, one at the house and then another one at the office, right? But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but anyhow, so, so I understand that you guys, I mean, especially when it's your first business, it's a little bit tougher to secure some financing. So how did you guys go about capitalizing the business? Well, did not get any financing. I mean, Atlanta is the easiest place to get funding. So we, I spent about three months trying to raise funds. I realized that it's not working out. So I had two options. Either stop thinking about starting a company or put our life saving the line. And we chose the second path. And, and, you know, looking back at life, my life was pretty simple. I didn't have fancy big homes to pay a big mortgage. I didn't have any fancy cars. Uh, so the typical expenditure wasn't that high. And we said, let's try. If it works, it's great. If it doesn't, we can always find a job. That's a mindset. So... Uh, there's no outside funding involved. We funded it. So you funded it, and thank God the outcome was good. So, uh, yeah. so everyone was happy. So at what point do you guys have very sign knocking on the door? You know, lots of companies that came knocking at the door. And VeriSign knocked at the door once, and we said, sorry, not interested. Go away. Or the term I used was, we're too young to get married. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, then they came back again, and I said no again. And the CEO said, do you even know what you're saying no to? Shouldn't you sit down and talk and understand and then say no? <laughs> I thought that was pretty smart. <laughs> right? And then we sat down, we had a dialogue, and it, it seemed like it would be a good opportunity to bring the two companies together. So we decided to, yeah. Uh, get acquired by Verisign. So then, so then, at what point? You know, I guess because this was a really big deal. It was your first company. It was the first company that, as well, you started with your wife. So, mm -hmm. what was that day like when when you actually signed the 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 agreement and you made this deal happen? You know, it was it was exciting. Uh, but I'll tell you, I have this weird thinking. I I have little attachment for money. Okay. I had turned down some crazy offers that were made uh, by some of these other companies who really want to show me that if I sold, my <clears throat> return will be 20x or whatever. Uh, none of that stuff moved me a whole lot. I think a lot of my success is because I'm not attached to money. Okay, I, I do the right things. I'm really not into fancy, expensive houses and cars and, and having five homes or whatever. So, I mean, it's a good thing. Uh, it felt good. I think having independence uh, with the wealth you create is a, is a good option to have. Uh, and that's but, great that you're saying that, Jay, because one of the things that, 
that I've seen as, as patterns from, from some of these great founders that I meet is that that, that attachment is, is out the window and that for them it's all about passion, having fun, you know, while they're doing what they are doing. And then also yeah. to a certain extent to, to give back. That's what really moves some of these folks. Yeah, yeah. And I knew a lot of that influence came from my mother. And my wife is also actually into, she's not into any of that money stuff. So it, it's a good thing. You do it because you should do something. The more satisfying thing to me was uh, all these people who became financially independent about uh, about 70 or 80 employees at Zscaler, the day I left, I looked at the stock price, I looked at the options I'd given to, I went to the spreadsheet and did the math, about 70 or 80, but essentially had more than a million dollars in the worth. No, I don't know exactly when they sold, how they sold, but that was probably the most satisfying thing for me. Very nice. Very nice. Because what were the terms of the transaction? Uh, the terms of the transaction. Remember I said, Verisign, we, it was a stock deal. We got about 8.5% stock and about 3% options uh, on top of that. Got it. So what, what it was reported is about $70 million in stock. So probably at, at that. At yeah, that would be about 8.5% of that valuation. Sure. Yeah. And there was some 3% options on top of that. So really cool. So obviously, you know, the uh, first rodeo, first success. If you had to kind of like look back at this experience, what was the biggest learning for you? So, you know, answering, sorry, the previous question a little bit, when I, when we did Zscaler IPO and uh, Zscaler, sorry, and the secure IT acquisition, I, I felt a similar sense of accomplishment because the Zscaler was at a much bigger level at a much higher scale. So what was the learning out of secure IT? If you choose the right market at the right time and you put together a great team and you focus on your customers, good things lap. And that's what I carried on throughout the journey. And also related to that was going into new markets. Uh, when I started Secure IT, there was no security services company. We were probably the first pure player security services company. So first mover advantage can be very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. First mover advantage in, in many instances is everything. So so one of mm-hmm. the things that, that I see here is that you worked for a little bit for VeriSign after the transaction. And then after this, you go at it again in, right. for your second business, Core Harbor Inc. So so, and this company eventually got acquired by AT&T. So, so mm-hmm. what were you doing at Core Harbor and, and how did the, the idea come about? So, you know, after doing secure IT, one of the things that felt like, wow, this thing happened so well. Was it a fluke or can I really build a business systematically? And that is one, two I was very pleased to see so many people financially independent. And the goal was if we do more, more people who work with me will be financially independent. So driven by a couple of those things, I was looking for new ideas. And Core Harbor was the first e-procurement ASP uh, using Ariba software. So we wanted to build an ASP business. If you think about ASP, ASP is precursor to SaaS. SaaS is multi-tenant. 
ASP would be a single tenant where you had a dedicated box for a given customer. So I went to the best e-procurement software company, Ariba, that was the market leader. And I said, look, you're selling this on-prem software. Let me do the hosted version of Ariba where I will uh, manage the service and make it available to uh, our customers. And that was a very novel idea. And it's a good idea. And, and I mean, if you look at what I was doing 15 years ago, and now a number of these security vendors who are trying to compete with Zscaler, they're trying to take their single tenant software and boxes and trying to spin them in public clouds and trying to do this. I can look back and say, huh, we, we really thought through some of these things early on and then moved to the more advanced technology. But ePocamer was a good idea. It eventually, now it has evolved to a level where electronic procurement is done uh, on a uh, SaaS version. Everyone does it. Ariba got acquired, but getting procurement uh, online is has become the norm. So we were the early vendor, or sorry, early company that proved it and really uh, made it very successful. Really cool. So then Core Harbor was acquired by uh, by AT and T, and then basically you move on to probably your second biggest success and we're going to talk about your biggest success which is your current company now this is scalar mm-hmm. but before we get into that i'd like to talk about this third business that you build cypher trust so tell us about cypher trust yeah cypher trust uh, came from my work at secure it at secure it i was very familiar with all the security issues all the hacks and attacks were happening and we were big news to see uh, email taking off, okay? And it wasn't widely used. And I said, huh, if email takes off, will there be more threats? The answer seemed like yes. If that's the issue, why shouldn't we build something like an email security gateway? So all the emails that are being sent flows through our, our security inspection service to make sure you're not infected with viruses and worms and all the spam and all can be taken care of. So again, uh, first mover advantage is what the key thing was here. And built uh, technology that was purpose-built from scratch and the business took off. Business uh, grew pretty rapidly. And, and the reason I ranked this company high is that the ROI here was very impressive as well. Got it. So then, so then for this, uh, for this business, I mean, did you, how did you capitalize this business? Because I mean, obviously this is your third rodeo. You've been, right. you know, quite a bit. And I'm sure that when investors were probably knocking on your door nonstop. So did you accept their money or how did you capitalize this business? You know, when you don't need money, everyone knocks at your door. Right. <laughs> <Correct>. <laughs> well, that's how the saying goes, right? When you need money, you, you don't get it. And when you don't need it, you know, people throw it at you. Exactly. So after secure IT, I never went out looking for money. Uh, I funded Core Harbor all by myself. I funded uh, Cypher Trust all by myself. No, I did take a round towards the end of it. Uh, and that's because I was working on going public and I wanted uh, somebody uh, outside investment because it, it seems weird to go public without any external funds. 
but that was the last day. I the business ran very well. Is a we were cash flow positive after only about three years, and we had some impressive growth. So very happy with the business. We had some of the largest companies around the U.S. as its customers. Got it. I think it was reported that you guys were uh, the intention was to raise a hundred million for the IPO. But I guess the the question here is how big was the business when when you guys um, you know actually did the IPO? So sorry, we didn't do the IPO. Eventually, it was acquired. Oh, so before the I, before uh, the IPO, that's when, when, and this is going to be interesting. That's when McAfee, right? You guys sold to McAfee. That, that's correct. So yeah, why don't you tell us about what exactly happened? Because funny enough, you are the second person in a month that I speak with that they announced an IPO, and then all of a sudden, you know, they decided to to make an acquisition and go that route. So, so why yeah. did you guys decide this at that time? So actually, the acquisition went through secured computing to McAfee. So there, so we were growing pretty well. We were doing about a hundred million dollar run rate uh, annualized business. Uh, one of Pinkus uh, approached me, and they said, "Look, we have a serious investment in this company called Secure Computing. That was doing about two hundred million dollars a year." Say, if we merge the two companies together, I think you have an opportunity to become a billion-dollar annual revenue company. So I had email security technologies, secured computing and firewalls and web security and a few other pieces of the technology. And that seemed pretty attractive. The, the plan, uh, what Pinkus talked about, seemed good. And I really wanted to build something big I don't want to remain like one of the 2,000 small security companies. So that's how uh, we merged into secure computing and which a couple of years later uh, got acquired by McAfee. Got it. So what was the, um, what was the deal of the transaction? I, I believe it was about $273 million, Is that right? I think there's a cash and stock deal. If you looked at the overall value in the... It was in the just shy of $400 million range. Got it. Got it. So then for you, Jay, what was the biggest lesson of this, of this journey, of this one, of Cypher Trust? I tell you, the lesson here was uh, I want to be careful but candid. Okay? Uh, if you combine with a legacy company and the cultures don't align, okay, it doesn't go well. Acquisitions need to work well uh, if the cultures are aligned. So I was coming from a fast-moving, high-innovation environment and hoping that after the merger, we move the whole thing fast. Uh, I realized and learned that you really can't. Okay, They were a little bit in a, in a steady-state, slow-growth mode. And I was actually a misfit there, even though I was the vice chairman. I was the second, no, actually probably the single largest shareholder. Uh, and that's when I decided that, hmm, probably I could grow. I could build a bigger company if I start from clean slate without having to worry about uh, integrations and the like. And uh, that's what I eventually ended up, ended up doing. So lessons learned. 
new clean slate technology meant for the future world is a far higher chance of success than taking legacy technologies and trying to um, really retrofit them. Okay, that's where Zscaler, eventually the idea of Zscaler came from uh, that learning. Got it. So, so for so after this transaction, you did your your next business, right? And your next business was Air Defense. And I really want to talk about Zscaler. So why don't we just really quickly the six yeah. years that you spent in in building Air Defense? If you had to summarize, really, like how you guys came up with the idea and what ended up being the outcome and the lesson, what would you say about Air Defense wow. before we get into Zscaler? Yeah, so quickly, first of all, again, these things are not zero. Remember, it is having, like I said, kids a year or two apart, <laughs> raising all of them in parallel. At one time, I see you have three companies. <laughs> They're all your babies. Uh-huh. They're all your babies. Right, right. So, Air Defense idea was very simple. It is like Cypher Trust and Secure IT. Look for the new opportunity. When Linksys showed up in the market around 2000 timeframe, and I bought one from Best Buy or wherever and put it at home, wonderful. I said, hmm, will businesses adopt Wi-Fi technology? The answer was, of course they should. It's so wonderful. If they do, will security become an issue because all of your signals are in there? The answer is yes. Huh, I should build something to really protect it. So we came with the notion of air defense. It has nothing to do with military. It is about defending your airwaves. So we built this monitoring technology that could monitor all the traffic going uh, from your laptops to Wi-Fi access points and like. It's a great idea, great concept. And it was fascinating. Uh, the business did very well, and we became complementary to infrastructure companies like Cisco and Aruba of the world who were offering Wi-Fi infrastructure. And Symbol Technology was a big Wi-Fi infrastructure company, and we're so complementary. And they kept on coming and saying, we're so good together, we want to buy you guys. So after saying no for a while, we eventually uh, agreed to combine with them. So it it was very Wonderful. And then by the time this happened, Symbol had already become part of Motorola as a company. So the air defense became part of Motorola. Got it. So so I got to ask you this. I mean, it seems it seems a pattern that that when people approach you, you say no. So you got to have this on board. You must be a magician when saying no, because you're captivating people to keep knocking on your door. So, so how do you do that, Jay? No, see, it, it really comes from strength. If you are strong and if you're doing well, you can say no. If you aren't strong, you can't say no, right? Uh, To be strong, you need to manage things right. I think sometimes entrepreneurs become overly optimistic and start spending so much that return doesn't happen. And then they become desperate, okay? So I think there's a right formula to investing and growing somewhat in sync. Yes, you need to make investments ahead of your returns. But sometimes if you invest X 
and you ROI say a fifth of it, you're going to run out of money. Okay. And you'll have no choice but to say, I need to do a fire sale. <laughs> but if you really have a little bit of coordination, uh, life can get better. Got it. Got it. So then the um, finally, there was a transaction, like you were saying, in this case, so a no transformed into a yes. And then mm-hmm. uh, eventually you go to, to, to build what it is probably your most meaningful um, company yeah. from, a, I would say, mm-hmm. market value perspective, or at least the way the, the valuation of the business is. Mm-hmm. And it's I yep. mean, today, I mean, you guys did an IPO and, and the, the market cap is over $8 billion. But I guess, I guess before we actually go in, into where things are today or, or at the present or future, let's go towards the past. And I want to go back to 2007, where you mm-hmm. are making this jump from your previous business, yep. Air Defense, to see Skylar. I want to understand how did you come up with this idea? Because because at the end of the day, this is your fifth company. I mean, didn't you have yes. already enough with four, Jay? Right. So here was the thinking. You know, when I did secure IT, I was saying, huh, can I really do it? Must be a fluke. To by the time I'd done these, I kind of said, I know I can do uh, a startup. I have no interest in doing one more and flipping it. This time, I want to do something big. I want to do something lasting. So the mindset was very different this time. And I was ready to invest whatever it took. So one big mindset change was I invested more money in Zscaler than all other startups combined. Uh, And that's because the idea was big. So the notion was simple. If you want to do something big and lasting that fixes some serious problem and it is uh, future looking, what would that be? So the, I asked three simple questions. Number one, internet was a big source of information even 10 years ago. Will internet become a bigger source of information? The answer seemed like, of course it will. And related to that was if inf- if internet became a big source of information, will more threats come from the internet? Yes, it seemed very obvious. So that was number one. Number two, I have been using SaaS companies like Salesforce and NetSuite since year 2001 in all of my startups, when each was under $10 million in annual sales. Second question, will more companies, uh, will more applications become SaaS? The answer seemed like, yes, it should. It makes so much sense. Third question I had was, we were mobile 10 years ago. We all had laptops. We had Trios and Blackberries. iPhone was just announced. Will we become more mobile? The answer was yes. So if we become mobile, information moves to SaaS or internet. Why should security sit in the cloud? Why don't we build security as a service? So Since I knew Salesforce very well, I understood the multi-tenancy and all the clean architecture it had done. I had seen how Salesforce was beating uh, Siebel software left and right. And I said, wow, if I built a security cloud like Salesforce did for Salesforce CRM, I could be displacing all these thousands of appliances that 2,000 security companies are building. So that was the inspiration behind it. Really nice. And and so who did you build this with? What was the, um, perhaps like the founding team or the first yeah. critical hires? Yeah, I'm very, I'm very proud of the founding team of Zscaler. 
because the platform I want to build would be high, high performance, inspecting things uh, uh, at a line speed. And I came across uh, the chief architect of a company called Netscaler. Netscaler was a load balancing company that was acquired by Citrix. And this company was already acquired for two or three years ago. The team was, you know, getting unhappy. You know what happens after a company get acquired by a large company, right? People just start getting tired of politics and the stuff. <clears throat> and this gentleman, K. Kalash, right? I talked to him about building a high-performance service. So he was, he's amazing. He's brilliant. So as we had a bunch of sessions, I knew He's the guy who could do it. And then he and I met a few other engineers uh, he had dealt, worked with. So we came together, and I was in Atlanta. And I said, huh, let's move to the Bay Area where the core team is, and we're going to start this company in the Bay Area. And that's, that's how the team came together. Very strong team. We started with about uh, a dozen people, literally, on day one when we formally started the company. About half of them were here and half of them are Bangalore. So it started as a, a multinational uh, company with a strong team of very good people. Very cool. Very cool. And I guess the um, in this case, you actually got some money from um, from outside investors. So you did get some money from Lightspeed, not, from, right? Not, not for the first five or six years. No. Oh, so you can go finance. Got it. Got it. Our number. Look, by this time, I knew that I don't need funding. See, here's another lesson entrepreneurs should learn. If you really want to do well, put your own money in the game, right? The money from outside gets treated very differently than your own money. (laughs) It sets the right culture. So I really didn't take any money. I put all the money and I told my team, we're building lasting architecture. So don't do any shortcuts. Build it right. And the first round came uh, from, actually, it was led by uh, RSA EMC uh, and, uh, and Lightspeed came along with that. And, and, you know, these guys were trying to acquire us. Everyone wanted to acquire us over time, and I had no interest in getting acquired. So they said, it's, let's, do, uh, let's take investments. So we ended up taking some investment from them. So then, but why did you decide to take investment then? You know, I I said no for a while. And then they convinced me that uh, we could open some more doors for you from sales and marketing side of it. I really didn't need money from them. But two things. One, maybe they can open doors for us because customer acquisition was always important. And number two, they could be sounding boards. You know, it's good to associate with some of the, the smart people out there. So those two reasons. Got it. So then so then, tell us about the early days. What were the early days of Syscaler, right? Like, I mean, what were some of the challenges that you guys were dealing with? You know, the technology we set out to build, multi-tenant, high-throughput, global, it actually turned out to be better than I expected. Since the dreams are so big, I thought if my team can deliver 80, 90% of what they tell me they can deliver, I'll be very happy. <clears throat> they deliver more than 100% of it. So on the techn- technological front, 
Yes, we had a bunch of challenges, but the team saw it did very well. The challenges we faced were more on the sales side. <clears throat> we took this solution out of the market and tried to go to the same traditional channel of value-added resellers. Those resellers felt threatened, right, because they, they would rather sell boxes with professional services and the like. Uh, we tried to sell the service to uh, technical audience and enterprises who kind of felt a little bit threatened as well because uh, they want to touch and feel the boxes and control them. So over time, I learned and realized that that our technology is not just a security thing. It enables transformation of the cloud and transformation is done by C-level. It's a CIO, it's a CISO, it's a CTO. Because what happens is when applications move to the cloud, the traditional hub and spoke network, which is optimized to go to the data center has to change. It must go direct to the cloud. That means every office should connect to the cloud. And if you do that, you need a security layer like Zscaler that's sitting in over 100 data centers around the globe. So we had to sell differently. We had to learn how to sell top-down for cloud transformation. Rather than selling like most security companies sell, what do most security companies do? They sell with FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. They all start with hacks and attacks and all those things. And, and that's not what we do. We show the CIO, we show the CTO how we help you transform to the cloud. And that learning uh, came over the years. We have lots of scars of the learning, but that's once we, as we adapted, uh, our, our sales have grown uh, immensely well. As you, you know, the numbers are all published these days. Very proud of the sales execution our team is doing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, it's amazing. The, um, you know, I was able to take a look here about the uh, trajectory that you guys have had. So you took the company public, and then, you know, I see that literally since like 2008, you have more than doubled. Uh, the share price has more than doubled, which is amazing. I want to talk about yeah. the the day when you were ringing the bell and you did the IPO. So we all know the, the press, they like to talk a lot about money, and I know that you're completely unattached to it. But, you know, they were obviously saying that this took you to the billionaire status, right, which for some of them, you know, was a milestone. And, you know, we've spoke that we spoke about this and for you, that was not a milestone and you're not attached to it. But I guess when you were ringing the bell, you know, that's definitely um, a, a good way to celebrate, to celebrate your journey as an entrepreneur and also, you know, what you have built from the ground up. So I want to know what was going through your head when you were ringing the bell. You know, it was extremely, extremely satisfying. Okay. I, yes, I got my financial independence at the time of secure IT, okay? I had more money at that time than I knew what to do with it. But I also seen at secure IT how my employees felt so happy being financially independent. So I looked at this opportunity as uh, hundreds of people at Zscaler becoming financially independent or having ability to do things they could never do. I mean, somebody wanted to send their kids to private school, being by the bigger house or better vehicle, or go on vacation for six months. And, and these people have been 
working with me for years. The founding team of Zscaler engineers that started with us 11 years ago is still with us. So it was extremely satisfying. It was very, very enjoyable moment for me and the executive team. I mean, we had about 70, 75 people who had flown from different parts of the country or some some outside countries to come together to be part of this celebration. So it it is very memorable, very satisfying. Really nice. And how many employees are right now with Zscaler? We have about 1,400 employees. Wow. So how do you think about culture? You know, culture is our number one priority. And if you ask me what makes a company successful, the, the idea is obviously important, uh, what you want to build, but ideas are dime a dozen. It really requires a wonderful team to make it happen. So its own teams execute. So number one priority for me is all about teams. And teams that are passionate, teams that are hungry, that are driven, and they don't mess with politics. But to make, do that, the culture is extremely important. So we look at culture as our biggest asset. We've built a great culture where there's a lot of teamwork, there's a lot of focus on customers that truly passion and drive and employees go the extra mile. Uh, if you ask me, my number one priority as a CEO is how do we maintain this culture as we are growing and becoming bigger? So how do you do that, Jay? Well, you know, there's no single silver bullet, but number one thing you can do is the following. Culture starts from the top. And culture is not about putting a big uh big poster on every wall. Uh, culture is how your leaders lead and live. If leaders uh, in the company exhibit the right culture, everyone gets it. If I get a corner office on the top floor with mahogany desk, no matter what I say, people understand what's going on. So our culture open communication, not a single office for anyone. I sit in the open queue or rather I should say open desk. Okay. The same way our employees sit. Uh, it's, it sends a strong message. So that's number one, right? Living the culture, leading from the front. And the second thing, I think it's important to hire people who are aligned with your culture, especially the managers, because If my managers we hire are not in tune with the culture we want to uh, carry on, uh, they'll hire wrong people. So those are probably two most important things to keep the culture. I love it. I love it. So one of the things that um, that I typically ask Jay, the guests that we have on the show is, I mean, you in your case, it's, it's just unbelievable. I mean, you have uh, all these different uh, experiences and companies that you've started from the ground up. So I want to ask you, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self before launching a business, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why? You know, I ask that myself uh, quite often. 
And I, t- I think about my time <clears throat> with my family, <clears throat> my time with my employees and everything. I've been lucky. Uh, my wife and kids were involved. We got them involved uh, in everything. So I, we spent a lot of time together. Uh, one advice I give people is if you want a good, happy life as an entrepreneur, get your spouse involved in a startup. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because my wife fully understands what it takes. Okay. And she's part of it. She's very different from me. Uh, We're on the risk taker. She's a risk averse. So we kind (laughs) of end up balancing it out a little bit. Uh, I'm very driven. And she's kind of very happy and satisfied. It's a good balance. But I think uh, getting your family involved, if you really want to do a startup, if it can be done, it's a very good thing. Um, You know, looking back overall, I made lots of mistakes along the way uh, in every company I did. For example, at Zscaler, uh, the biggest learning lesson I had was sales. Uh, sales had to be done differently. But uh, one lesson I would say is when entrepreneurs are emotionally attached to the company and they're doing it for money, they'll be often disappointed. If you really do it for your passion and drive and believe that money will follow you, then you end up being a lot happier. I love it. That's a very, very powerful, Jay. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I have a LinkedIn profile and people can send a message to me on the LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, Jay, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Alejandro, thank you. appreciate the opportunity. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.